HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting healthy food that tastes great. Visit bobsredmill.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. This show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people who we have the great fortune of learning from on a regular basis. On today's show, we welcome Jenny Dorsey, professional chef, artist, food writer, and culinary consultant. She leads Wednesdays, a New York City-based pop-up supper club, Studio Atau, which marries augmented reality and virtual reality with food, and is the co-host of our sister Heritage Radio Network podcast, Why Food? About Career Changers. In today's episode, we'll learn about the many paths to success in the food world, how virtual reality infiltrates food, and we'll hear Jenny's Julia moment. Stay tuned to learn what is a Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia Child is often thought of as a career changer. She was nearly 50 when Mastering the Art of French Cooking was published, and the French Chef television series made her a national TV star. Julia would be the first to admit that until she landed in France, she had no idea what, what she wanted to do with her life, other than thinking there should be more to it than just being Mrs. Paul Child. While she'd famously joined the World War II effort, serving in the OSS, where she met her husband, Paul, and before that had tried to be a novelist, to work in advertising without much success, Julia really didn't have a career to change from. 
It should also be pointed out that in this period, the late 40s and early 50s, the career options available to women, especially well brought up, even college educated women like Julia, were pretty limited. But literally upon arrival in France, Julia had her aha moment. Her discovery was not only that great food nourished her, it also completely captivated her. And with one meal, a fire was lit that led to the creation of a culinary icon. All because Julia discovered something she was truly passionate about and then pursued it with great vigor. This brings us to today's guest, Jenny Dorsey, who's an expert on career changes, having done a complete 180 to arrive at cooking and has now become a diverse food world multi-hyphenate. We were introduced to Jenny when she became a 2017 Les Dames d'Escoffier Legacy Award recipient, a terrific mentoring and professional development program for women by women supported by the foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Hey, thank you so much for having me. We're delighted you're on. So you do so many fascinating forward-looking things in food, it's kind of hard to pick where to start. But let's delve into what you cover in your podcast, Career Changing, and specifically Career Changing into Food. So tell us about your own journey into food. How, how did that happen? Well, I started my career uh, in management consulting within the fashion and luxury world. Um, I always kind of had this uh, strange idea that I wanted to be in fashion. I don't honestly know where it came from. I think it was more, it was this a facade I wanted to see of myself. So after college, I went to college in Seattle, where I'm from. I moved out to New York City, you know, the big city, um, and started my career. And I, you know, I think I loved so many, I liked the show of it, saying that I was doing this, saying that I could wear these clothes and buying these things. But I was really unhappy. Um, I was really, really thin. Um, I didn't eat very much. I was obsessed with constantly buying these clothes. And I actually put myself in like a net negative occasionally. I would buy so much because it's kind of like filling this hole in your life with things. And Mm -hmm. eventually I woke up one day and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm unhappy. I don't know why I'm unhappy. I, I look at the partners in my firm and I don't want their life. So what am I even, you know, striving for? Um, and as opposed to making really like a radical shift, I was definitely risk averse and scared. So I ended up um, applying to the Columbia Business School, early decision, got in, and essentially had like a year before I had to actually go to school and was like, okay, this is my time. What am I going to do with, you know, this year of freedom? I totally planned on going back into consulting where the money was, you know, where like the stable career was, and mm-hmm. uh, ended up going to culinary school because I loved it. That was always a thing that drew me back. It was always a thing that I wanted to do. It was what I did with all my free time and with all my other discretionary income that I didn't really have after I bought all those clothes. Um, mm-hmm. Went to school, and I graduated from culinary school three days before I started at Columbia. Went to Columbia for a semester and was like, oh, my God, I have to be in food. You know, like, I, I'm going down the wrong path again. I need to figure out what I can do in food, and this is, like, who I am. I just need to find my find my place within it, even if it doesn't, it's not the traditional food path either as working in a restaurant or being a private chef or any of that. So, yeah, it's been quite a journey, and it's been challenging at times, but I'm uh, happy, happy to have done it. It's better on the other side than uh, when I started. 
So it sounds like there were kind of two parts to it. The first was you realized you were unhappy in what you were doing and you proactively made a change, but then it wasn't the full direction. But during this sort of interim, you gave yourself a treat to, to per- pursue a passion, which is really when the whole thing started to 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 change more dramatically that the right the going to culinary school for you was a, like kind of a reward it wasn't actually a purposeful step to become a chef per se Exactly. I definitely didn't, you know, anticipate longevity in the field. I had never, you know, treated it as a career change at the time. I was like, oh, this is just me. Like, this is a creative exercise before I go into a lifelong, you know, journey of being miserable again. Um, I don't, that sounds so silly now, but that was really what I was thinking and thought that would be okay. Um, and the minute I stepped foot in culinary school, I mean, like, first of all, I was around so many different types of people, people I generally didn't interact with before other a lot of other career changers because I was going to work and um, going to school at the same time so I was in the evening program and people with these kind of like interesting different backgrounds that made me appreciate other people in a way when before I was all wrapped up in like oh what are you know at first it was grades and then it was like promotions and then it was how much people are making it gave me this kind of holistic view of like what I was missing out in looking in for the good in other people and kind of that translated into like looking into myself and being like, I don't have to be only my personality and who I am isn't based on all these factors that I've deemed important. It's really about, you know, how happy I am, how I treat other people, what, you know, good I can do for the world. Now, I'm guessing that that's a great revelation. And especially in terms of that, that working in food can be so holistically emotional and, and gratifying. I'm assuming those are conclusions, though, you arrived at over time, not not the day you graduated from culinary school or the day that you quit Columbia Business School. I think it just it took a while to well, I think I think like graduating from culinary school and then going Right back into the business school, the juxtaposition. So it was so rapid that that definitely helped spur this realization of like something different. I don't know what's different. And then kind of realizing, hey, when, when I was in culinary school, I was around people who might not have gone to the Ivy Leagues that everyone else I'm now surrounded with. They don't make that much money. They have, you know, kids that like that they're, you know, they're struggling with their mortgage. But like these people are wonderful people and you look be you're able to see a bigger picture and then going right back into like everyone works at Goldman and wants to talk about their whatever you know deal that they just landed you're like oh my god what's happening here like there's something that doesn't jive with something that I've learned or something that I've internalized and care about now and I need to figure out how to get back get back to the you know, the, the basis of what I really want, like the person that I want to be. And it's, and I don't think I can develop that person here in this setting at business school. I think that's a great, um, summation of your aha moment, just like Julia had an aha moment in, in one meal to, so to speak. And so the podcast you co-host on, on Heritage Radio Network, Why Food, very often asks your guests to reveal their aha moment, which you know, to me makes a lot of sense. They're usually great stories. But I was curious what you think about in, in in your evolutionary process and in talking to people about your experiences, what do you think aha moments, hearing other people's aha moments do in terms of helping others figure out, you know, their their true self and their true path? 
I think there's um, many different types of aha moments, of course, but the ones that I think are so interesting is many times when we ask the guests their aha moment, and then, you know, they take a few minutes to think about it right before we go on air. A lot of times the, the aha moment is not, you know, I woke up, you know, in bed one day and realized this. It was it started way before when they were a teenager or sometimes when they were even a kid, and they trace back to this one memory that they were doing. Um, we just had um, one of the co-founders of Birch Coffee on the show, and he was telling us how when he was in his teens, he drew these floor plans for um, a nightclub that sold cocktails and eggs, which does not sound very good, but it was so interesting. <laughs> like, he's like, I never thought of that before until you asked me just now. And like, you could kind of see the makings of his career starting from such an early, early age. Um, and I, I, you find that sort of thread through a lot of people's aha moments. Someone else mentioned that they were doing something as a kid, that they were a very adventurous eater. I think to myself, you know, I studied abroad in Italy and had like a great food experience there that was kind of like, you know, just buried in the back of my mind. There's these so many things that I think a lot of times for career changers, they resonate deeply in you, but you kind of shove them down because you pursue this other path. And but they just kind of bubble to the surface over time, and eventually you find yourself in food. And 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 so you think it's it's almost like hearing other people's aha moments or the sequence of things that led to the final aha, if you will. It kind of helps trigger or spark deep in someone's memory their their own feelings or or to kind of assess: Am I doing the right thing? Yeah, I think um, if you listen to enough of these stories and kind of use them as a, a, a guide for your own, like you think about the memories that you cherish the most, um, you can string together a, a, some a story of your life and what you care about, and I think that guides you to the right place. Um, and I also think for a lot of people who are thinking or contemplating about going into food, they have so many of those that, you know, they're scattered about, and once you put them together, there's like seems obvious it almost seems obvious in hindsight it always seems obvious but i think like for those thinking about going to the food it like i hope might propel them forward um and realizing that they're very similar to these other entrepreneurs so so let's say that we're talking out there to folks listening who who maybe have pieced together their aha moments and are ready or nearly ready to make a leap, whether it's applying to cooking school or getting a stage in a kitchen or um, maybe just picking up mastering the art and trying a recipe. What's your overall advice to people considering, you know, leaping into food and particularly if they're kind of already in a profession or started a profession and are doing a 180 like you did? Um, I think the biggest thing is that there's always going to be you know, people who might not, it's not that they don't support you, they don't get it. There's always going to be people who just don't understand, um, who are calling to question your decision, all of that. And the most challenging part that I found was simply just ignoring them. It was, I found it almost impossible to ignore. I can recount many nights of worry and crying and talking to my then boyfriend, now husband, about, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, there's just so much doubt. There's a lot of imposter syndrome. I mean, I still have imposter syndrome, but um, at the beginning, a lot more of that, I think. And it's a big part of making a big change like that is just sticking through with it. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, nobody ever really, quote, unquote, made it by playing it safe. Um, you know, 
it's uh, you you're worried about making this career change into a world that you're not sure about, and you almost don't want to have a personality in it. For a long time, I played this like, oh, I make all types of cuisines. I don't really have an opinion on any of them. I like all foods. Um, but I, I, that's not true. I have lots of strong opinions. And I think because of that, I've been able to build up more of a brand and more of a following. And that's not going to be for everyone. I don't have to get along with everyone. And I, I think it's very daunting for someone who's changing into a new uh, career, into a new industry to want everyone to also accept them. And that's, uh, I don't think it's necessary. And it's just something that you get more comfortable with over time. And and so you did you did do a culinary course. Do you do you think going to cooking or cooking school or or taking a culinary um, diploma or something like or a certificate is is that essential to changing into food or do you do you think there it it, it works for some people not for others? Absolutely, I think it's uh, it really depends on the person. Um, I liked it because at the time I had no culinary training, um, and I I'm the kind of person that like. I was so used to having, you know, I want grades, I want a certificate, it makes me, it helped me feel a little bit more stable and structured. But that being said, I mean, I have a lot of opinions about culinary schools and the way they're set up in this country. And we could take an entire podcast just talking about that. But it was an expensive education, um, it was tens of thousands of dollars, which, assuming you're, if you're going into restaurants, um, there's a lot of problems in the restaurant industry right now as well, that it's going to be hard to pay back those loans. I mean, I just paid off, I think, my culinary school loans earlier this year, um, mm-hmm. last year, yeah, since it was the beginning of 2018, and it, it was like it was not an easy feat. And I definitely think you get can get 100% of the things that I learned in culinary school um, if you work in a kitchen. That being said, working in a restaurant kitchen um, and trying to learn basic techniques, you really have to be like a self-motivated self-starter because otherwise no one's going to take the time and be like, this is how you get like the best diced potatoes or this is how you do these things. You just have to constantly ask questions and you have to be in a kitchen that's going to want to teach you. There are kitchens where the chef just does not care. He wants you to be a cog and a robot. And I've been in those kitchens and I left because there's no point in being there. And it's, Mm. you know, it's a myopic view of the chef, but we don't need to get into that. It's um, If you find a kitchen where people want to educate you, then you can learn so much without having to pay for school. And, and, and would you would your advice or is your advice to younger um, cooks and chefs who are coming up who might be in a kitchen where there is no time for mentorship or direction or teaching, would you say to them, change because it's not going to do you any good? Or there are some situations where it still does you good? leave, 100% leave. If you're ever being like treated poorly in a kitchen, like leave. Um, There's such a shortage of cooks right now. Like, I don't want to say like, oh, we have the upper hand, but the kitchen needs you. So if they can't, if they know that they need you and they can't bother to treat you well, then leave. If they can't give you an upper trajectory, leave. If they can't give you the mentorship and education so that you can also rise to the next level so that you're not prep cook or fry cook forever, then leave because no one's going to look out for your career except for you. And you have to take that into your own hands. I personally think that's great advice and um, it should make all executive chefs quake in their boots and start behaving differently. But obviously the pressures of running a, a kitchen, particularly if you're doing, you know, lunch and dinner service seven days a week are, are, are quite intense and immense. So I was wondering if you think, having done a career changer, and I think I revealed to you I've done my share of career changes too, do you, 
do you think if you love food, do you think you're better off do waiting and doing something else first? Or if you're already persuaded that you know that's your passion and love, there there's no no point in trying something else? Um, I think it depends. Like when I think back to uh, my earlier career, I mean, usually I don't have so many fun things to say about it, but I will say that I learned a lot of skills that I do use, especially on my consulting business. Um, I think as things as simple as like being good at Microsoft Excel or like learning how to do project management, change management was also, I guess that was a specialty I was in within fashion and luxury. So like learning Uh how to manage upwards and downwards, but like manage upwards, get people stakeholders to buy into what you want to change. Um, That is a skill set that I've been able to use in the food world and use effectively. So there's so many things that, you know, past, skill sets will always fuse into food because food is not just about being able to literally cook. I think we all can have seen, you know, chefs who literally are just good at cooking sometimes make it, but many times they need an operational partner and many other people to really get them to succeed, to success, sorry. Uh, So I think however you end up in food, you'll find that whatever you were doing before was helpful in some strange way or another. I've heard so many interesting stories um, on my podcast of people doing, uh, I don't know, just when they were writing or a comedy writer or uh, they were in mortgage or they were in whatever else, um, a lot of finance to food transitions, and it always comes to play in some way or another. No, that makes a lot of sense. That made me think about we at the foundation have been talking to Le Cordon Bleu in London, and they want to launch a new scholarship um, specifically for career changers and for a specific program that teaches trained chefs how to run a business because ultimately where where the restaurant industry has moved, the, you know, the big play is to be a chef who can run a restaurant, if not multiple restaurants. And if you only have kitchen and cooking skills, those, those are fairly different than what it takes to be an entrepreneur, essentially, and a, a business owner, leader, manager. Yeah, I um, I was just reading an article about one of the uh, top chefs. I don't know if he won or he was like a fan favorite, but he used to own you know, one very, very good restaurant, which really blew up after his appearance on Top Chef. And then he tried to expand to multiple restaurants, and now the whole thing, everything is shut down, um, just expanded too fast. And um, he was talking about, like, problems with capital, and that's the big thing I see with a lot of clients, too, is just, like, the problem with working capital and understanding what that means and your the impact to your business. And those are things that, you know, you don't get taught in culinary school, and it's hard. You, you don't want to learn that trial by fire because it usually results in something getting shut down. Um, and it's, it's I yeah, I really believe that, like, more holistic business training, money training, like, you know, just how to work with finances in this country is really important. And also I, I do believe that for career transitions, um, whatever you were doing before you went into food, it's like, it was meant to be, you know? Mm, Yeah. And then all kind of comes together and you say, wow. So yeah, I think that's to say that the multitude of experiences can all be tapped. Um, particularly because when you work in food, as we're going to talk about when we come back, you could be doing many different things in addition to standing at a stove. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Jenny about the intersection of virtual reality and the food world. We'll be right back.
With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes good. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Use the discount code JuliasKitchen in all caps for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products. You can stock up on organic, gluten-free, paleo, and vegan products from oats to flowers for a healthy family and happy heart. I have to admit, when I first learned that Jenny worked on virtual reality in relation to food, I was like, what? So I'm intrigued to learn more about two tastes I didn't really realize could go together and I know nothing about. So Jenny, fill me in. What what does augmented reality and virtual reality mean in relation to food and the food world? So um, first I'll differentiate between the two. Virtual reality, um, I think people, most people have seen those geeky pictures of people with like a giant headset on, like looking around and laughing. Those are like the terrible virtual reality stock photos. <laughs> but um, that is essentially when you're watching a video that's been engineered. So it looks like it's you're, you're in the scene. So you can turn in all different directions um, depending on how um, advances you can, you might be able to walk around in the space or perhaps you can just move your head and see different angles of the space. Um, augmented reality, on the other hand, is where you can see the physical world, um, but there's an additional layer of visuals on top. So um, if you've ever used Snapchat, um, the filters, when you have your own face and then you add like a hat or something, or like the, the dog um, tongue, I think oh, was like yeah. the first the, one, the um, and Pokemon Go. Uh, it's... Uh, very, very popular, and that's like kind of the cutesy um, generic version. And now there's just a lot more in terms of AR for you know, technical training. Um, there's things that are a lot more, I think, uh, real looking, not, not as cartoonish, that can be used for different applications. So anyway, um, I fell into AR VR very randomly last year. I was having another aha moment, I guess. I was at acupuncture, and I was uh, trying to start this culinary studio. I wanted to do something for social good. I couldn't figure it out. And I just woke up in the middle of my acupuncture session and was like, AR VR, that's what I have to do. And I went home to my husband. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even know what that (laughs) is. And I said, me neither. Um, and so that started my AR VR journey, just literally trying to get, take people out to coffee and ask them about how do you use this and what do you do and what does this mean and have you done anything with food? And people are like, no, food, like what does food have to do with this? And so it took me a really long time to try and take piece together what a, what is feasible. Um, basically everything is feasible if you have infinite amounts of money, but what's feasible <laughs> in my current budget <laughs> um, and what I really wanted to portray. There are some other restaurants. Um, there's one in Shanghai and there's one in Ibiza, Spain, that are doing some VR stuff and AR stuff, but it's very much entertainment focused. And what my focus has been is how do you use AR and VR and combine it with food for some sort of like social good? How do you give back to the world um, that has given so much? I mean, for me, like, the, you know, the world gives you so much amazing produce, things, like just things that you can share with other people. How do you use food, which is a visceral um, a visceral element that comes like just combines people in one space. It's very, you know, people form memories about it and use it to 
improve their lives in some way. So um, I just wrapped up my first virtual reality plus food project up in Nicaragua. It was uh, sponsored by a sustainable hotel chain down there. And Mm. the idea was to convey, like, what is the beautiful, sustainable things about Nicaragua in this kind of a new way um, while being paired with, like, some Nicaraguan food that, as well as cocktails that I prepared with my husband. So we focused on three main facets of Nicaraguan culture. One is coffee. Mm-hmm. A ton of the coffee that we drink is from Nicaragua. Fish. They have access to many different types of fish since they're you know next to the Caribbean. They're also next to the ocean. Um, as well as Caballo Bio, which is this like Nicaraguan feast sort of thing. It's very traditional. It's a, it's really fun. Um, and we did a ton of 360 video across two weeks showing the like the process of coffee being made. It's such a labor intensive process. And then I made a this like Trace Leches coffee cake that was inspired by a lot of the desserts that they have there. And my husband um, created this cocktail pairing. So the idea is that people would be able to watch this VR video, see the coffee, and then also um, eat and taste the coffee and like learn about the story in that way. Um, Same Mm -hmm. with um, fish and caballo bio. Um, And that was great. I think it was a good introductory way to learn about how to use the technology, but I'm now working on something a little bit more intense with VR as um, like, I guess a little bit more um, like not just based in reality. It's supposed to be a little bit more futuristic looking. I think a lot of the issues that we're facing right now is about, um, problem between perception and reality. I think if you look at anyone in the U.S. specifically, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth that actually happened, you know, like, and then there's a lot of truth that we tell ourselves and really being mm-hmm. able to dissect that and get people to engage and think about that. Like everything we think is true is really what we want to think is true. Um, and how do you play with that thought in virtual reality? And so I'm working on essentially building all these scripts of characters and this set so that when you walk in, you sit down, you put on your headset, you listen to these conversations that these characters are having, um, and you can kind of see where the breakdown occurs between truth and reality. You listen to that conversation for about five minutes, and you're presented with a dish that specifically focuses on um, what they were talking about. One of the main topics I want to address is like racism and cultural appropriation. Another one of those topics is toxic masculinity. One of those topics is art and what is the purpose of art? Is it for consumption or is it for personal satisfaction? Um, What does it entail? How is it related to wealth and all that stuff? Um, and so the dish itself would also reflect that in the way it's plated. It's the way the actual like plate of the dish is made, whether it's, you know, we can get into that later, but yeah, so it's been a, it's been a little bit of a stepping stone process of learning how to incorporate it in a way that's going to feel natural and interesting, but also get people to be on their toes a little bit. Wow. That, that that's definitely deep thinking going on that it's not surface at all and is is i think what you were describing i was going to ask you about what studio Atal is doing but you, i think you were just describing some of the projects that you have in development or have just completed yes um and then on the ar side i'm working with this amazing developer to do some augmented uh plates so i make ceramics 
And the idea mm-hmm. is that um, I'll make my own ceramics and they'll have a pattern on them. And if you plate, you know, food in the center, you hover your phone o- across it and you'll see additional visuals on top. So some of the plates I made have, you know, simple like paint splatters on it. And it plates are like a very a pretty simple dessert, like a ice cream and a cake. Um, but when you hover your phone, you see like kind of the paint splatters coming out of the plate and like enveloping the um, the dessert itself. So it's like kind of interactive. We're working on some things where you can like, there's a hidden um, target underneath the cake. So as you eat the cake and then you scan the plate again, you see, you know, something else happen that pops out of the plate or something like that. I think that's a little bit more on the, the lighthearted fun side than the other projects. Well, and it, it takes photographing your food to a whole whole other interactive sort of <laughs> yeah. level that I, I can see being very popular, although you can also see it, it getting sort of, maybe I'm getting a bit silly, but out of control where people start to expect that everywhere. So you're just imagining people at a diner with their phones trying to, after eating your, okay. <laughs> trying to get something to come to life that is otherwise static. So I just wanted to go back to, because I was fascinated by what you were saying, because actually I was just listening to someone else um, whose name I've forgotten off the top of my head, but is a professor at Yale who was talking about her own research um, into global behavior and talking about tribes and how people are fundamentally tribal. And as a result, that's oftentimes where this perception and reality is getting mixed up because if you're always with a like-minded group, you can tell yourselves whatever truths you want and they may be inaccurate. And and is that the kind of thing that you were trying to achieve through the these dialogues? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's uh, I, I wonder. Oh, we can I'll ask you later. Um, the which professor I've been reading a couple of books about this as well. And the one I'm on right now is called Elephant in the Brain, which there's a, a big part of that is talking about like the just how we grow grew out of these like tribal instincts um, and how it really shapes what, how we perceive ourselves, how we see other people and what we want to believe about ourselves. Essentially the the book's premise is a little bit sad, but essentially uh, the idea is that we all just have, we're basically driven by like very, very selfish desires and needs. And the, because of that and the competition that arises because we all want more of all of these things, um, is why Homo sapiens sapiens has increased its like brain power and intelligence so much farther than you know our next in line like chimpanzees or gorillas or other monkeys. Um, and anyway, the, the book that's the the book posits that's why we've developed so much and gives all these interesting data points on like basically how we are able to dissociate you know our own selfish desires and how we try to achieve those selfish desires by blanketing them in a more um, like more team-friendly viewpoint. So like you might do something that is inherently kind of selfish, but then you tell yourself, well, I did it because for the greater good for this and this. Um, you know, I could say like, oh, I want to start a studio because I'm trying to be altruistic and give back. But at the same time, is it really because I want to develop my own brand? Is it because I want to be recognized? Is it because I want to make money? Like just kind of balancing and understanding where that, where that breakdown lies and how to deal with it and, you know, be a little bit more realistic with yourself about who we are. Yeah, I think I wrote a term paper in high school and possibly in high school French that there's no such thing as, you know, or positing, is there such a thing as altruism? Is altruism actually inherently selfish too? But so take take that to 
to food. So how how do these dialogues result in a dish, and how how do you see this sort of dish? I'm assuming the dish is coming at the end. It's meant to it, it to be some sort of concluding insight for both parties. Is that that sort of what you're thinking you you would achieve with this project, or or how does the food come into play? Yeah, exactly. So um, I'll start kind of from the beginning when. The- I first got into food. Part of the the love of food that I think most people have is that it builds a community, and I do believe that um, food is how you can share culture with other people. If I don't know someone well, but they're from another culture, I always ask them. You know, in um, I don't know, in Slovenia, what do you guys eat for breakfast? And that <laughs> starts its own conversation, and you get you know into other things, and you get to learn about them through their food. I think it's very beautiful uh, that way. But also, I think there's a there's a mistake in thinking that food itself just builds community. You know, people love to say that at restaurants, at supper clubs, at pop-ups. Like, you stick a bunch of strangers around a table and, boom, you suddenly have a community. Um, that's not really the case. I think food builds a community over time because it's so visceral and you're sharing this very physical and emotional, hopefully, if the food is good, um, state with other people. But how do you actually get people to be in the right state to share their vulnerabilities while they're eating? Because I think that's where you really, you know, you're, you put down some barriers while you're eating. Um, I've been hosting these pop-up series for four years now, and we've experimented <laughs> on all our guests. Um different ways of doing this. And now we've learned that there is, I think, a way to build community slowly by, first of all, we have to be vulnerable. And then we ask our guests to be vulnerable by literally asking them hard questions before they even show up. Um, We ask them things like, what is your biggest failure? Or um, are you in the job you want? And if you're not, how are you going to get there? And these are like uncomfortable things that people don't want to talk about, but we like take their answers. If you don't answer, you can't come. We take their answers. We put them in different places so people will talk to each other. And like your guard is down. You start eating. Your guard comes down a little further, and people are really talking about difficult things over a dinner table instead of, you know, talking about, the weather, or the subway. So as I was kind of growing off that, I'm like, I think it's really cool and I want to continue doing Wednesdays, but there's something that Wednesdays is missing. And I think part of that is because of social appeasement. When you're around people, you don't want to be that asshole who says like, no, I disagree. You know, I think mm. there's also something beautiful about, beautiful about eating in silence and really thinking to yourself, what, like, how do I create the reality that I live in, because you are literally actively building that every day in your mind. Um, And you can't be thinking about these things when you're also trying to engage in conversation and eat your food and think about what the person across from you is drinking and whatever. So the whole idea of VR being a slightly isolationist, I thought was perfect. The idea is you would be listening to conversations, kind of thinking about those conversations with, you know, one conversation slightly tinged with ideas of racism and cultural appropriation, I'd say, for an example. Um, after you take the, um, you come out of the VR headset, you're not seated with anyone else. You're like by yourself eating. There's a spotlight on you. You can't see anything. You're presented with one dish. Um, and that dish will be uh, a manifestation of the conversation. So for this dish, the idea is that, you know, half of it would be kind of like, this jagged porcelain plate that serves collard greens, for example, in the way that you would find it at any place in the South that, you know, a gas station or someone's home, like it's just kind of like stir fried, maybe with a ham hock or something very simple and classic. 
And then there's um, this, like, wooden sculpture that kind of looks like there's chains in it. There's, like, barbed wire, and it grows out. It's like a column that built, grows out of the porcelain dish at the, pl- at the bot- base of the plate. And it presents, like, this fancified version of collard greens where there's a puree and there's, like, perfect little squares of ham and there's, you know, sauce that's made, made into a fluid gel. And just showing the juxtaposition of that after you have listened to this conversation, there's no objective. There's no, I'm not saying this is good, this is bad or anything. It's just, why don't you think about this? And how do you feel about it? And what does that mean to you? And then I just hope that people will walk away and kind of think about like, hmm, like, what does that, what, how do I feel about this exhibit? Because most of the time when you go to art museums, you know, good art doesn't tell you to think a certain way. It just gets you to think, period. Wow. Yeah, no. And that's that I can feel myself in all the different directions as you were talking of thinking about this and that and the other thing. And I think that kind of stimulation is what leads people to sort of evolve and develop. So we are going to look forward to staying in touch about when when this project can come to fruition and, and be experienced. Thank you. Yeah, I'm hoping to have like a two week run of this um, as like an exhibit gallery sort of pop up. Um, probably in the fall, so I'll definitely let you know. It's definitely been a work in progress, and I'm working with scriptwriters and finalizing a VR studio and starting the food experiments, so we'll see. Well, it sounds really exciting and really innovative, so we look forward to hearing about that in the fall. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Jenny's going to reveal her personal Julia moment. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. So, Jenny, what, what's your Julia moment? So, I wish I had, like, an actual moment with Julia. Of course, that would be amazing. But I think that I've read so much about Julia and read all these quotes by her. And um, I think that's my favorite, the one that really stuck with me. And I, I mentioned this concept earlier in the podcast is you can't, you know, really make it or make a difference by just playing it safe. And what I think Julia means to a lot of women chefs like myself is that you can be, you can have opinions and you can be contrarian, you can be different. And like, that's allowed. Um, I think Julia was criticized a lot for like not being as clean as she should have been in the kitchen. And there's a quote uh, 
from her somewhere is like, I don't like those clean people anyway, or something like that. <laughs> and I just love that because she's like, you know what? I don't care about those people because I'm not cooking for them. She's cooking for herself. She's doing what she wants to do. And like, I think, in, especially in that era, which I think was not exactly the most woman friendly, that was a very contrarian thing to do. She wasn't trying to please. She was being selfish and she was like, you know, staking her claim. And I remember reading that like a while ago and just thinking, hey, you know what? Like, even despite all the things that she had to deal with in her time, like you have this, this fire in you to do something your way. And like, it doesn't matter what other people think. And gosh, why don't more with female chefs like say that now, you know, there's, it's so hard to, because you're worrying about if, how that will affect your Instagram followers or the press that you'll get. And she didn't have to worry about those things and she didn't care. Maybe she did. She was on TV, so she probably did. But alas. No, I think she, I think in certain places she she took flack for her opinions and but I think that's poignant to your to our whole theme that we started with with career changers is that I was going to ask you if you thought maybe it helped that she came to what she was doing so late in life at 50 and I think as you get more mature you you do tend to develop a more I don't care what other people think attitude or life's not getting longer so I better get on with what I really care about and maybe maybe that's what helped give her the confidence to really have that, you know, contrarian, do what I believe in attitude. Yeah. I mean, she allowed women to, she said like women are allowed to have your own like voices. And then I think, yeah, because she was a little older, she was kind of like, you know, she's played it safe basically for her entire life until then. Um, and look where, look how happy or like, you know, eventually she got to a point where she was happy, but like think of all those years that she spent, trying to figure out what she was doing by like following the well-traveled path. So I think that's something to be said. I mean, I hope that for many people it doesn't take them until they're 50 to make a big change. But sometimes if that's, if it takes you that long, then like just hallelujah that you got there. Exactly. Well, I think that's a really poignant Julia moment. As I said, thank you very much for sharing that. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. We'll look forward to staying in touch. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook. Search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter. Our handles at Julia Child JCF and mine's at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. We're also on Instagram. Search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. To learn many more, to learn much more about the many lives of Chef Jenny Dorsey, go to jennydorsey.co. It's J-E-N-N-Y-D-O-R-S-E-Y dot C-O. You can follow her on social media. Just search at Chef Jenny Dorsey on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or your favorite social media application. Uh, to check out the Why Food podcast, go to heritageradionetwork.org and search Why hyphen food. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. If you like the podcast, please give us a review as that really helps new listeners discover the program. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 